listening to the Northside Christian Church Sermon Podcast. These teachings are recorded at our weekly Sunday morning gatherings in Springfield, Missouri. For more about our church, service times, and how to connect, visit northsidechristianchurch.net. Good morning. I um, was listening to that last announcement there thinking, I'm really glad it's not a run for life because I'm not a runner. Um, Anybody with me? Runners? All right. Here we go. Um, I am not a runner. I've been um, mistaken for a swimmer. Um, I've been mistaken for a basketball player. Um, none of which I'm good at, Um, but I've never been mistaken for a runner. And that's probably because I can just walk on this stage and wheeze. Um, You can probably hear I'm already out of breath. Um, But, but I'm, I'm not a runner. A couple years ago, we had some, uh, some college students come through our ministry that were um, cross country runners from uh, SBU, just up the road in Bolivar. And it was a couple brothers who got connected with our church through a mutual friend. And they had started coming. They started bringing their friends when we started running the shuttle up there. And we just had, we had 15 to 20 off of the team. And then some weeks they would be gone because they were on their, on their meets and were, you know, off running, whatever runners do. And, um, I mean, they, these guys, I would listen to them talk about running and they were just obsessed with it. If you, you follow them on social media and they're like posting, you know, like all of these world records and all this sort of stuff and the stuff that they're doing each week and they're getting better. And I mean, they, they loved running so much. It was, it was such a passion for them. And I would just listen to them and have like no clue where that passion came from or anything like that. Because they, they were just, I mean, they were in awe of everything about running. Like they, they would talk about like the, the music that they would listen to or even just, they would sometimes not even use music. It blew my mind. They would just, um, just listen to their feet and the cadence of their feet like as they're going. And they could tell like, are they on pace or off pace or that sort of stuff. I mean, like way in to running. And what I've realized from the outside looking in, there are, there are two different types of runners. There are people like that, that love running. I mean, they are in awe of everything about the running world and they run because they love to run. And then there's people who run out of obligation, not because they love to run, but because they love, I don't know, chocolate cake or something else like that. You know, like, like you run because you have to. You, when, you, when you're on the treadmill, you're just running because you're watching, not, um, not really, you know, thinking about how much I love to run. You're watching like, how much farther do I have to go so I can have not the diet Coke, but the regular Coke today, right? So it's like a transactional thing for you. It is, it is I don't run because I love running. It's I run because I have to. We're getting ready to, you know, start signups for our ski trip that we do every other year for our college students. And I'm already starting to think like I've got to get in shape because I don't want to be stuck on the top of the mountain and go, I like ski patrol is going to have to come get me. Not because I'm hurt, but because I can't breathe. So, uh, I, I am an obligation runner. I am obligation cardio, all things. I don't love it. I'm not in all of it, but I know that at times it's necessary. There's a big difference between awe and obligation. If you brought your Bibles this morning, I'm going to turn to Malachi. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. And if you're reading in our year of Bible engagement with us, today we start the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, and all God's people say, Amen. Right. 
the gospel is coming. Man, you really feel the good news when you go through a lot of the bad news, right? So this morning, actually, we're going we're gonna to make our way through a lot of uh, the first chapter of Malachi. So you'll be halfway done with your reading for today, Malachi 1 and 2. What, I was just talking with Kevin Punch, our youth minister, this morning. We are talking about what a great day to kind of jump back on, you know, school starting right around the corner, new rhythms, all of that sort of stuff. So come back on, jump on this highway with us as we read the Bible in a year. But Malachi, the last book in our Old Testament, and it is fittingly conclusive. Um, Israel has come back from captivity, 70-year captivity. The Babylonians had taken them away from their home and from their temple. It had been destroyed, but now it's been rebuilt. We get a lot of that story in the book of Nehemiah, where the the temple gets rebuilt. Um, And they they have shed their reputation, pretty much, of, of being idol worshipers. They're they're no longer um, wanting to worship the gods of Babylon and Edom and the other other, uh, nations around them. They come back believing in God because God had done what he had promised to do through the prophets and through through the judges. Like finally they come back, they have their temple back, they have their sacrifices back, everything is back. And so the, the critique in Malachi is not about worshiping idols. There's a new problem. The new, the new issue is that they're going through the motions. They're, they're doing all of the stuff, but they're not honoring or respecting or fearing the name of God. The book actually starts out, God says, I have loved you. And they said, how have you loved us? Show us. Can, can you tell us? Can you, can you give us specific examples? And God's just going to be like, okay, like, like. I, I have, I have loved you. And he gives them examples in the first few verses. He gives them an example from the past an example from the future. He's like, like of what, how he is going to sustain them. But, but Israel is so focused on how hard their life currently is. They move back. Everything's supposed to be sunshine and rainbows, but life is hard. Life is hard when you're following one God and when you're pursuing him and he's got things that he uh, wishes of you and he, you know, you're trying to worship God. But so they come back, but it's, it's not, it's, it's not the respect or the honor or the fear that God is asking for. And so they're just essentially just playing church. If you got your Bibles, Malachi chapter one, we'll start in verse six this morning. This is this back and forth that God starts to have with his people. It says, the son honors his father. And a servant his master. But if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is your fear of me, says the Lord of armies? You priests who despise my name. Yet you ask, how have we despised your name? God says, by, by presenting defiled food on my altar. How have we defiled you, you ask, when you say the Lord's table is contemptible? And so God is frustrated. God is displeased with their worship. And it, it has that, uh, that, that almost Amos-like feel to it where God is like, I am, I am disgusted by what you're offering me. I'm displeased by, by what you, you're, you're offering me detestable things. You've, you've, you've done all of this in the house of the Lord. Commentators describe this as dead orthodoxy. See, Israel is not, um, they're not neglecting worship. They're still going to worship. They're still going to the temple. They're still using the temple. They're still following the rules, kind of, but it's the passion behind it. See, Israel comes back from a 70-year time out from Jerusalem, and not with awe, but with obligation, they worship God. Not passionately, but passively. They're running because they have to. They're like, well, we don't want to go back to that again, so we better 
go through the motions. He expects sacrifice. Let's give him a sacrifice. He expects this on this day. So they've set aside this day. We better do it. See, God does not intend us to endure worship. God does not intend us to just go through it and make sure it happens. And, and God is asking his people to, to, to come to him with awe, not obligation. We run with God, not because we fear what will happen if we don't check in with him every seven days. But we run with God because we love God. <laughs> um, we worship him because we, we love him. Awe, not obligation. And so in chapter 1, I, we see some warning signs. God gives them what, what is he displeased with, specifically to these priests. What, what have they done that has made God so angry? I think there's three clear areas in chapter 1. There are a lot more in this book. Wayne is going to still be in Malachi next week as we finish off uh, the Old Testament. But this morning, I want, to, I want to just look at these three clear areas. We find them in three short verses here in the text. It's, uh, and here are the things. I'll just give you my outline. I'll just give it away. Uh, what we give to God, when we talk to God, and how we serve God. These are, these are the things that God wants to address with his people, with his priests. And so here in these, four, uh, these three verses, we start in verse 8. So first, let's look at what, what we give to God. This, this accusation comes to the priest. The priest had resumed their duties in the temple, and they had a job. They had a job to do. There, there, after the reconstruction of the temple, there was, um, there was a job for them. The Levitical system is the machine starts back up. There's things for the tribe of Levi to do. There are things for the priest to do. But there was a lack of awe and a reverence in this new reinstated sacrificial system. The priests were not, they were allowing blatant disobedience to the laws that God had set for sacrifices. And, and these, these sacrifices were not going to be acceptable to God. Look at verse 8. It says, when you present a blind animal for sacrifice, is it not wrong? The implied answer there is, yes, of course it's wrong. And when you present a lame or sick animal, is it not wrong? Bring it to your governor. Would he be pleased with you or show favor? Asked the Lord of armies. You see, it was the priest's job to inspect and approve or disapprove of all of the animals and all of the, the offerings that would come in and be sacrificed to the Lord. This was part of their job. And there were clear guidelines. Some things were off limits. You know, you're supposed to offer your first fruits, your, the best of your flock, the firstborn, an unblemished lamb. And, and they were allowing, with a wink and a nod, they were allowing all of these things like blind, lame, sick, blemished animals. And those weren't acceptable to God. So they were slacking on the job. And the ironic thing is here, if you look back, actually jump to, to verse 7, they are saying the, the Lord's table is detestable. God says, this is what you say. The Lord's table is detestable. What you have to understand, why, why would they say that? Why would they say the Lord's table is detestable? The, the priest actually got, made their living off of what was presented to the Lord. So a portion of what was given to the Lord was, was taken for the priest to provide for their family. So they would take um, from the offerings and from the sacrifices. It's how they fed their family. It's how they, it's how they had a living. It was their only job to do the temple work. And so they were allowed um, a, a certain percentage. Well, the, the priests are looking at the, the leftovers of what has been offered to God. They're looking at the portion that is rightfully theirs. And they say, no, this is, this is not good enough for us. We can't, we can't feed this to our families. This is from a blemished lamb, or this is from a, you know, this is, this is, this is from a, you know, this is already bad. Like, we're not going to take this. So, so the priests are blaming God for not providing for them. The Lord's ta- your, your table is detestable. We can't eat off of this table. 
But all along, it's their complacency. It's their uh, failure to do their job. It's their failure to have awe and reverence for God that has allowed this table to be defiled. And so the implied question that God is saying is if, if the food on God's table is not good enough for them to accept, what makes you think that God will accept it? I wonder how often we look around at our current circumstances or we think about what's going on in our lives right now and we can get displeased with God. Like, I, you know, like get displeased with what God is doing and, or what he's not doing or the lack of his, we don't feel his presence. How often do we make poor decisions? We turn and run from God. We isolate ourselves from community and accountability. And then we turn around and look at God and be like, where were you? Where are you? My life doesn't feel very blessed right now. Where, where could you be when all along we were the ones sabotaging ourselves? It reminds me of those old cartoons like Tom and Jerry or Wile E. Coyote where they set up like an elaborate trap for their enemy, right? You know, whether it's, whether it's the mouse or the road runner and that. They set up this, you know, where like a, they paint like a road on the, the side of the cliff only to like just a few seconds later just to smack run into it themselves, Right. Or they set up like the dynamite on the other side of the room and then they go to light the wick and it's lighting their own tail or whatever it is, that sort of stuff. They sabotage themselves. And then they, how often do we act like these priests? We, we sling accusations at God saying, uh, God, God hasn't given us enough or God doesn't love us enough. All the while we know that we have not given him our best. You could say it this way. We can't offer secondhand sacrifices and expect supernatural results. They say, God, where are you? Why is, why is what we're receiving from your table defiled? Why is, it, why is it detestable? And he's like, because what you put on it is detestable. What you've put into it is detestable. These offerings were not even useful in their flocks. Blemished and broken lambs, they had, they had no use for them. They, they wouldn't have kept them around anyway. Like if a, you know, if a, a wild animal were to come and attack their flock... And obviously, one with the broken leg or the blind or whatever, they're going to be like, well, we didn't really have a use for that anyway. But they took them to sacrifice. They said, we'll give this to God. This is, this is something not really useful for me, but I'll give it to sacrifice. I, I was reminded this week when I was preparing of um, when I was, uh, I, don't, I don't really know how old I was, but somewhere, somewhere in the wintertime um, in my 20s, and I was walking around the mall back when people used to go to the mall, and uh, I was wearing these big, long, baggy basketball shorts, which I think I still have, but my wife won't let me wear them. So I've got them like in the closet. Like, but, uh, but sometimes I get out of the house and she's like, ah. so, um, but it's better than seeing my white legs. So I'm just saying, but I had these, I had these shorts on and I remember I had bought something in the mall with cash. I know this sounds like I'm talking like another century, right? I had, a, I had, you know, like a $20 bill or something like that. And I bought something with cash in the mall. And they handed me back, not a bunch of ones and fives, that sort of stuff, but like a bunch of change. It's like I got all my change back or all my, my change in change. Do you remember change? Like quarters, nickels, dimes, like those sort of things. Like, and so I had like so, it was so, so like cumbersome, so heavy. Like I realized, so I just took this big wad of change and I put it in the pocket of my gym shorts. 
And then I had to like retie the jaw drawstring, right? So because I'm walking around the mall and I'm only embarrassed, but I'm like, this is so cumbersome. Like it's, it's making all this noise and I've got like my phone and my wallet and I've got all this change. Like, this is so annoying. I, I mentioned it multiple times to my friend that I was walking with. I was like, this is so annoying. Why do we still have change? Why is change? I'm like on this whole diatribe of like how we should be, you know, all this sort of stuff. And, and I was just mad. I was just upset that I had to carry this stuff around. Well, then as we walk out of the door of the mall, like we're, we're leaving the mall and there's Santa Claus ringing the bell with the Salvation Army bucket, right? And he's ringing and ringing and ringing. And I'm just like, I have an idea. All of this change that's in my pocket that's driving me crazy, I can use this for good, right? So I dig all of that change out and I just start, you know, tossing it in the, in the bucket. And it's making all kinds of noise and Santa's like ringing his bell even faster. You know, he's like, yeah, you know, whatever. And I'm like, I just gave, you know, I gave like 35 cents or whatever it was like, but it was all in pennies and nickels and all this. And so, and, and I walked away, you know, I can puff my chest. I'd be like, yeah, I was a generous guy today. And my friend's just looking at me, shaking his head. Like you're the worst. Like we just walked through the mall for an hour with you complaining about all of this change jingling in your pocket. And the first, like, you think you did something good there by dumping that into the salvation? Like, I'm sure they appreciate it. I'm sure they appreciate the money and the gift, but your attitude to all of this, he's like, you, you can't pat yourself on the back for that. It, it, it reminded me of what's going on here. Like God's not interested in the secondhand gift. It's like, well, we did it. Like we gave, right? Like we, we, we did something. So what are we giving? Now, just to clarify, this is not about how much we're giving. This is not about um, how, how much it wasn't. It, this is a, this is a question of quality not quantity in sacrifice. Remember when Jesus taught the disciples and they were observing the widow from across the temple grounds and they had all of these, uh, all, all of the, you know, the rich and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law would bring their, you know, big, uh, big coins and all that. And they'd dump them into these big old, you know, kind of horn type things that make all kinds of noise. And everybody would know, wow, look how much they gave. Wow. They're so holy. They're so amazing. And then the widow kind of sneaks in and takes her two little coins and drops them in, hardly makes any noise, hardly anybody notices. But Jesus, you can just imagine Jesus from across the temple courts with his disciples pointing. He's like, watch this. And Jesus says that because she gave out of her poverty, she gave more. The rich gave, and they probably didn't even feel the weight of it. You know, they have, they have a backup plan or a storehouse or, you know, something. They have, they have plans upon plans and a fat 401k or something to fall back. It didn't really matter to them. It was just like, look what I did. Look what I did. And she only has her faith. She only has her trust in God. She brought the best that she had. She brought not the second hand, but all that she had. Ah, not obligation. Secondly, we see in verse 9 that God is displeased with when we talk to him, when we talk to God. This is not just about offerings and sacrifices, but also the communication with God had gone stale. People were in the habit of praying only when they needed something. I think we can fall into that habit. God actually, I love this because God is actually really sarcastic in this text. And anytime I see that, like there is sarcasm in the Bible. I just know that I was made and created in his image. And uh, it makes me feel good. Um, but when God gets like, God doesn't get passive aggressive. He gets like aggressive aggressive. Um, but sometimes it's, it's got some sarcasm in there. And I just, I just love it. So here's what he says. Like right after he says that, um, you know, go, go try to give that to your governor, which he's kind of like, yeah, that's not going to work. Here's what he says in verse nine. And now plead for God's favor. 
Will he be gracious to us since this has come from your hands? Since it's coming from a priest, I'm sure that God will accept it. Will he show any of you favor? Asked the Lord of armies. Maybe because it becomes, comes from a priest. Maybe because it comes from a holy person. Maybe because we bless it ahead of time, you know? This is the prayer when we sit in front of our, you know, of our, our, our meal that is for sure going to, you know, shorten our lifespan. And we say, God, would you bless this food to the nourishment of my body, right? Like, could you do some sort of a miracle with this double cheeseburger, you know? Could you do some sort of a miracle with all of this? And I'm not dogging any of that food, but to sit and to look at it and go, we were at, um, we were at breakfast at Cracker Barrel a couple of weeks ago with all of our, our college life interns. And we start to pray and that just kind of like, you know, you just say things in prayer sometimes. And, and, and somebody had said, uh, bless this food to the nourishment of our body. And I'm looking around at biscuits and gravy and I had ordered like an extra side of bacon. And I'm just like, oh man, like, like God's got some work to do. Like he's a way maker, but I don't know if that's arteries he's talking about, but, but that it's that kind of, it's that kind of prayer. It's that kind of prayer that's being offered to God. They're just like, God, would you please now bless this, even though we threw it together at the last minute and we weren't really going to use it for anything else. And, and everything that, you know, everything that you've commanded and demanded of us, and uh, we're not doing any of that stuff, but we're here and we brought an offering and we put it on the, on the altar and we sacrificed it. We did all of the stuff in the right way. It was just, you know, it's not like our, our best. We did make an offering. God, would you please bless that? Would you do something with that? There's an interesting play on words here in the original language. And it, it actually kind of adds to the mocking and sarcasm that God, has, God is laying on here. Um, God asked them if, if they would give that offering to their governor. So he's like, think about the way you pay taxes. Think about the way that you, uh, you know, make an offering to your governor. Go ahead and take your blind, sick, lame animal and march it up to the governor and be like, I can't pay my taxes this month or this year or whatever. Would you take this instead? And God, in the text there, it says, see if he will show favor on you. That word favor is, is pane in the, in, in the original language in the Hebrew. Pane, it, it's, it's the word for face. And specifically where the face is pointed. We just sang a song. It was like, may his favor be upon you in a thousand generations. May his, may his face shine upon you. That word favor and face, they're really the same word. Pane. And he says, take this to your governor and see if his face will turn towards you and go, yeah, that's an acceptable sacrifice. This is obvious a no. There's no way that this is going to be accepted by um, what, what the text would actually suggest, a foreign dignitary, like somebody you're trying to impress, somebody you need to impress. And then right after that, God follows this up, this clear answer of no, God follows this up with now. So, so take that and see if he will favor you. And now you come to me and ask for a favor, same word, pane. You ask me for a favor. You know your governor won't favor you. You know this is not okay for your own kids to eat at your table. You know that, that no one else would look favorably on this, but you expect me to do you a favor and favor your secondhand sacrifice. Isn't that how we often treat prayer? Isn't that how we often, we exhaust all of our other options. We've asked all of our friends. We've, you know, done a poll on social media. What should I do? We've, we've taken everybody's opinions except God because we know that he's always going to be there. So in my most desperate time, I can go to him. In my, in my most, um, you know, the time when I'm down and out and completely have no other options, that's when I can ask God because I know he'll be gracious to me and I know he'll give me an answer. 
there were times in my adult life, and I was actually, uh, I've actually been older than I would um, care to admit, but times when I have had to call my parents and have them bail me out financially. Um, I made that mistake in the first service just to let that linger for a while. And it was like, what? So when I got myself in trouble, you know, whether it was, whether it was a, a, a loan that I took out, you know, it was too much than I could really afford monthly, or it was something that I, you know, something that I really wanted and couldn't wait to save up the money for all, all this sort of stuff. I'd get myself in all kinds of trouble. And this, this would happen at school. If you're like, they told me I can't go back to class if I don't pay this amount of money. And, you know, mom and dad were always, they never like held it over my head. They were never, they were always super gracious and always giving and all that. Um, even though I, I just knew that it was, it was a sacrifice for them. Um, but, but imagine if I never grew out of that. Okay. Imagine if I, if I never got better at budgeting, let's be honest. Like imagine if I never married Brie, who was really good at budgeting and, and she like, imagine I just still, even today to be like, well, school's getting ready to start. And I got that school list for the kids. And, uh, you know, I, I ate out a lot at Chipotle this, this, this month. So I don't have the money. I got, so I just call and I'd call up my parents. And can you imagine what that relationship would be like? And some of you might have this relationship with a kid. we like, when your phone rings and you see their name, you're like, what is it this time? And imagine that, that transactional relationship would be strained. You know, I wouldn't just be calling to have a conversation or, a, you know, have communication with my parents. It would always be something. It would always be asking because I've gotten myself into trouble. I, you know, need help digging myself out of this hole. This is what prayer had become to the Israelites and to the priests. A transactional cure. We have done nothing to prepare for this sacrifice. We have done nothing to offer you something in awe and wonder of who you are. We have done nothing to compare with the love and the grace that you've given to us. But we're going to ask you after the fact, would you please bless it? We've exhausted all of our other options. Would you please bless it? God, would you do us a favor? Would you shine your face on us? And the most amazing thing about God is that he will, is that he hears our prayers But God is not displeased that we are talking to him in our most desperate moments. God is displeased that he doesn't hear from us more often. That it's not a communication. Philip Yancey describes prayer as keeping communion with God or keeping community with God. I think I even said that wrong. Keeping company with God. Like having somebody over and catching up and the details of your day that you're like, I I wouldn't really put that in my prayer. That's too... You know, like that's too mundane. That's too whatever. God is interested in every aspect of your night. Not when you're not just when you're desperate or just when you feel blessed, but all that stuff in between, everything on the scale from one end to the other. It's not just a transactional cure. And so finally we come to verse 10. We see that third thing as to what God is displeased with in the Israelites, and it's how we serve God. How we serve him. Look at verse 10. I wish one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would no longer kindle a useless fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you. There's a lot of exclamation marks in this text. The Lord of armies says, I will accept no offering from your hands. Now remember, God is speaking to the priests here, their job and their duties. The priest's job of opening the temple, starting the fire, making sure everything is appropriate. God is imploring them. He's saying, would one of you, actually in the text, it, it kind of leans towards like, um, is there anyone brave enough 
Is there even one person faithful enough? Is there one person that gets it that would just shut the doors, lock the doors, keep the firewood for another time? Because I'm not pleased with what you're doing when you're going through the motions. The priests were so concerned with keeping the temple and keeping it running, keeping the machine going, that they didn't realize that it wasn't working. Their job was to keep it working like a machine, and it wasn't working. They were serving because it was their job. But Malachi says that it would be better for them to lock the doors of the temple, to close the doors, to not allow any sacrifices. It would be better for their service to God if they would just lock it instead of continuing in obligation. This, this is a, a very scary text to me. This is a scary text. As someone who went to Bible college and then went um, right into ministry, really not had another type of career outside of the church world. So I went to uh, college ministry at Missouri State, and then I went worked with junior high kids, and then I ran back here um, and started uh, working college ministry for 11, 12 years now. We've been here at Northside, and I'm like, uh, this, 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 this text is so convicting because it's terrifying. It's a warning for Israel, but it's a warning for us too. Would God look at the things that I have done in my service to him, the things that I kind of am very proud of, 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 you know, giving my life to him and serving him? Would God look at me and go, you know, it would actually honor me more if you just stopped doing that. This is what this message is to the priest. Your one service in life to the kingdom you have been set aside as a, a tribe, as, as a nation. You've been set aside as this. And your one job is to be the holy connection between God and the people. And you have done such a bad job at that. You're so lackadaisical. You're so complacent. You're so, um, you know, you're, you're doing this such, out of such obligation that it'd be better if this didn't exist. So for God to go the entire Old Testament, setting out the rules and the regulations and everything that the people of God needed to do to connect to God so they could see their sin, they could see the sacrifice, and they could understand what God has done for them. God's like, you know what? All of that stuff we've talked about for chapters and chapters and chapters, it, it probably is better if you stop doing that. Because you're not doing it with honor. You're not doing it with respect. There's no fear of the Lord in you when you do these things. This reminds me of another passage that in the Bible that scares me. Maybe one of the most scary passages that Jesus says. It's not about a lake of fire or about a dragon or the mark of the beast or anything like that. Some, some of the most scary texts are when Jesus looks to believers, looks to disciples and says things like this. Matthew chapter 7, verse 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Weren't we prophets for you? Didn't we drive out demons in your name? Didn't we do many miracles? We did so many good things for you. We were there every single week. We served in every single ministry. And I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. One preacher said it this way, we can get so wrapped up in doing the work of the Lord that we miss the Lord of the work. We run the risk of also becoming like these priests who, who look at what they got out of the temple worship. Remember, this was their meal for their family. They'd go home on Saturday night, all of the sacrifices, and they were like, this is detestable. Verse, verses 12 and 13, it's repeated. They complain about the food that they get. It's defiled because it was unfit for the altar. Verse 13, it says they actually call the temple worship a nuisance. It's like, why can't we just go get food like everybody else? Why can't we just go have our flocks and whatever? Why do we have to get the leftovers? There's, there's some meaning in that. They scorn the whole process. Why are we even doing this? And this happens for us too. 
It will happen all across Springfield and all across our country, maybe all across the world today after church, around lunchtime. The discussion about the things that happened during worship. The discussion about, um, you know, how bright the lights were or how dim they were or how loud or soft the music was. And you can actually probably just pick a restaurant this afternoon after church and you could go like eavesdrop on conversations. And it won't all be about Northside, but it'll be about other churches. And so you'll start to hear the parking lot was crowded. The sermon was too long last week. Um, when we... <laughs> He admitted it, so he, he said it was. You guys were in here for it. When we come out of obligation, when we come to worship God in obligation, our hearts are searching for critique. When it's an obligation, when it's an every seven days sort of thing, just because we've got to get it in and get it out, like our hearts will search for critique. Worshiping out of, worshiping out of obligation focuses on me, my preferences, my feelings, my views, my seat, my wants. The things that I prefer. Worshiping in awe focuses on what God wants. What God desires. Which looks less like critique. And what David would write, it looks more like a a broken heart and a contrite spirit. That's what God is looking for. When I went off to college, I was really excited to move to a a little bit bigger city where there were a lot of of churches, honestly. Because I, I, I went to the same church growing up and was like excited to see something new, to try something new. And it was, you know, just as worship bands were really, you know, kicking off. And we had tried to try to start that at our home church. And um, I got there and I was like, I'm going to go and I'm going to play in a worship band. I'm going to get involved in a church. So I found this church right outside of Joplin that I just loved. Um, got involved in their youth ministry. It was playing on Wednesday nights with tons of kids. It was just a, it was just a blast. We were leading worship there. And then on Sunday mornings, I got, got to be on the, on the praise team there and was started, started playing and just really, really loved it. But there was one thing about this church that really... Um, that was really just, it kind of bugged me. It kind of made it like, eh, maybe I should look for another place. Maybe I should do something else. And it was, it was the one complaint that I had, and that is that the preacher, it was pretty boring. I mean, you know what it's like, right? Don't, don't name in too loud. It was just boring. I mean, you guys have seen me run around up here, and if you're a camera person, I apologize in advance. But like, like, to, like I, I was just like, excited, you know, that sort of stuff. And, and, uh, I'm going to Bible college. I'm getting to hear all of these like amazing professors who were just like really great at the craft of preaching. They're learning, they're teaching us how to preach and the art of preaching and teaching and all of this. And I'm just like, this is great. And I get to this church and I'll be like, I don't know if you guys, if you grew up in a church with pews, but like, those are not built for comfort. Um, and that front, you know, the pew in front of you is, is where, where your forehead goes. And like, that's, that's just not a comfortable way to sit through a sermon or really anything. And I remember talking to the youth minister of this church and the youth minister who I thought was just a really dynamic person. And I was like, maybe, you know, maybe could they like let you preach a little more often? Because when you're there, I'm like, you know, engaged and all that sort of stuff. And I just thought this was the most, one of the most humble things because he worked, he worked for this guy. I was like, man, how do you do this? Like, you feel it, right? We get in the room and it's like, worship is like, woo, all right, worship me. And this preacher walks out and everybody's like, a different noise would come out of everybody's mouth, right? As like, I asked him like, like, I'm just really, really struggling with this. It's just, it's kind of boring. And he told me two things that I'll never forget. And anytime I, I start to start to well up with a heart of critique in worship service here or anywhere else, um, I'll remember these two things. The first one was um, that, the, that the word of the Lord will not return to him void, which I found out later is in the Bible. <laughs> I was a freshman. Um, and, 
And he said, every time that the word of the Lord is preached faithfully, that there is truth there to grab and to take home and to apply. And he told me, you might have, a, you might have to listen harder. You might not want to put your head down on the pew in front of you. You might want to sit up and listen and find that truth. Number two, that's why I thought of this story when I was preparing this, this text. He said, if you're dissatisfied for what you're getting out of worship, consider first what you're putting into worship. Consider first what you're putting into it. What have you brought into it? Because these priests, they look and they see the moldy bread and the spoiled meat and these, sacrifices, these, these things that they're not willing to partake in of themselves. And they don't realize the reason that that exists, the reason that they're disgusted by that is because they've offered these leftovers to God. God's like, don't you see the irony here? Don't you see that, that you're offering me these sacrifices? Yet you're not even willing to eat from this table. What makes you think I would accept them? When worship is an obligation, awe gets lost in criticism. Wonder gets lost in critique. Serving will come in last place. Offerings become optional. It's just an obligation. It's just something we do on a rotation. And I know this chapter has seemed very bleak, and I'm sure that Israel is just like, ouch. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to get more so as we go through Malachi, as we go through this last book. That's why I said it was, it was um, uh, fittingly conclusive. But also why it's, it's, it's a really great place to end in the Old Testament is four times in this chapter, God reminds his people of his greatness. And each time that he reminds them of his greatness, it's not just greatness for Israel. It's not just greatness for Israel. All four times, they're reminders that God is paving the way for his name to be known through all the nations. He says to his people that that, that my greatness and my love will extend beyond Israel's border. That, that, That his love will extend to the nations. See, God is setting the stage here in the last book of the Old Testament, not only to save Israel from their dead orthodoxy, but to also save the world. His plan is starting to take shape. And Jesus, his son, would come and Jesus goes into that very same temple and flips the tables and says, my father's house will be a house of prayer for the nations. No longer do we come out of obligation, but we come in awe. This is why we worship here today. It's why we celebrate and support our global workers. It's not out of obligation, but it's so that every tribe, tongue, and nation would stand in awe before the throne of God for what he has done and the sacrifice he has offered of his son. And every week we offer an invitation to accept that. Maybe you've been coming to church your whole life out of obligation because it's Sunday. That's what we do on Sunday. Maybe it's time to run with God because you love to run. If you want to take your next step towards Jesus this morning, I'll be out here towards the end of service at our decision point. You can drop us a a note online with the text you see there on your screen. Before we sing, I did want to acknowledge that it's, it's kind of weird to remind you that you have an opportunity to give this morning after just talking about secondhand offerings. So I'll just tell you, if you came with baggy basketball shorts this morning with a pocket full of change, just drop that in the parking lot, okay? That's, that's not, we don't, I can't, I don't know if I can say that. We don't want that. We probably want it, but drop that at your seat there. <laughs> 
But I think it would be strange, even hypocritical, to say, um, you know, this message about obligation to allow you to give out of compulsion or guilt or any of that this morning. When you give this morning, Scripture is very clear what kind of givers please God. Cheerful givers, generous givers, pre-planned givers. And for those of you who are prepared to give this morning, you can give online. You can see the number on your screen. Or these boxes as you exit um, each of our doors, you have an opportunity to give there. In thankfulness to God and faith that he will continue to bless the ministry of Northside, that his name would be great among all of the nations. After I pray, um, Aaron and the band, we're going to introduce a new song. And so I just ask that you still just remain seated through the first verse and chorus of that so we can get a little familiar with it. And he's going to, he's going to direct you to stand and sing before we dismiss. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you in awe of all you are and all you've done. God, we, we say sorry for the times we've come out of obligation. We say, we say sorry for the times that we've gone through the motions. We repent of worship in this way. And God, as we come before you in awe, as we worship you in awe with our, our offerings, with our decisions, with our lives, we, we walk from this place in awe of everything that you've done. God, I pray for anyone in this room who has who's not walked with Jesus in that way or walked towards you in that way, that if, if they would take the bold step of faith, the next step for their faith to, um, to accept that, to understand that, that when you come to Jesus, you don't come to rules and obligations, but you come to a relationship. God, help us to see the awe. Help us to run with you because we love to run not because we feel like we have to. We thank you for your son, Jesus, making all of this possible, the ultimate sacrifice, the worthy lamb that was slain. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thanks for joining us this morning, Northside. Before you go, make sure you check in and let us know you were here. Text the word CHECK to 417-233-1200. If you want to respond to today's service, you can do that online through Decision Point. If you want to know more about baptism or becoming a member, you can request more info at northsidechristianchurch.net slash decision. This is also the place to find out about our life groups, find out what sort of service opportunities there are, or if you just need to get in touch with a minister. And if you're online, you probably use social media too. Make sure you're following along with Northside on our Facebook page, Instagram account, YouTube channel, or Twitter. We are glad that you chose to join us this morning. As we head out for the week, let's make sure we take the love of God with us. Take good care of each other, Northside.